Well, we are teaching through a series of messages about the questions that Jesus asked. And I don't know if you realize this, if you've read through the New Testament, if you ever read through the Gospels, one of the things you'll notice is that Jesus is constantly asking questions. He asks a ton of them. One author observed this, that Jesus asked 307 questions. I like to have people have time to do this. 307 questions in the New Testament. He was asked 183, I love this. He directly answered only three of those questions. Do you have any friends like that? (laughs) Some of us do. Listen, Christ's questions are designed to get at what's under the surface. They're designed to help us pay attention to things that we might not normally pay attention to, stuff that's going on inside of us, decisions that are being made long before we actually act out the decision. He's helping us pay attention to our motivations, what we have our lives aligned around. His questions are actually kind of subtly working to uncover, as I talked about in the very first week, our deepest longings and to reorient those longings toward him because he believes that's the best thing for us. And these questions that Jesus asked, they're actually designed to poke at us a little bit, to force us to get off the fence that we so often find ourselves sitting on. It's actually really important that we get poked a little bit. Because we tend to sit on a fence of we really want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to have to rearrange my life, and I don't want to be uncomfortable in any way. I don't want to be challenged away from the things I think I already believe. His questions don't let us stay on the fence. In fact, his questions remove the fence, and they force clarity about who and what we give our allegiance to. And so if we could be really honest for a second, I'm not sure Jesus is the kind of friend you actually want. Let me say that again. I'm not sure Jesus is the kind of friend any of us actually want. Like, high on our current list of values and friendship is affirmation and non judgmentalism. <laughs> That's like really high on the list. If we're honest, we want friends to help us pursue our own good, no matter what we've determined that good to be. They help us get to our own goals, not challenge our goals. We want friends to help us get to where we want to be, friends that will help us overcome any obstacles on the path that we have chosen in life. We want our friends to be completely affirming and not judgmental. Tell me I'm wrong. We generally agree with a Psychology Today article as it lists non-judgmentalism as the key quality of any real friend. Defined this way, our ease in accepting our friends' choices regardless of how they may differ from our own. A recent article by James Mumford uh, called Finding Brutal Friends, I love the article, uh, from Comment Magazine just this past month. He writes this, a true friend does not impose her own agenda. She is understanding and tolerant, accommodating and empowering. We put this premium on non-judgmentalism because we think it's the only way friendship can be generally, uh, genuinely altruistic. That's the root ethic for us. Only by helping me pursue my own good can a friend care about me for my own sake. Anything else we think would fall short of the idea of regard for others. James goes on to write, this picture of friendship is attractive, compelling, widespread, and also completely flawed we see Jesus being a whole different kind of friend. He crosses all of our friendship boundaries. 
As we read through the Gospel of Mark as a church for the past few months as we studied that, we find that Jesus seems to be much less about trying to impress you as a potential friend, much less like trying to you know, gently work to earn your trust, much less about kind of earning your respect. Rather, his entire focus we see in the gospel seems about helping you see life from his point of view, a view he calls the kingdom of God, and helping re- you reorient your life around that point of view because that's his predetermined best approach for your life. Jesus loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life, to put it in like old language. Like, what if that's really true? That's like a whole different way to do friendship than what we value today. He doesn't, he definitely doesn't appear to be at ease in accepting your choices regardless of how they differ from his own. For example, somebody wants to follow Jesus. Says, first, like, I gotta take care of burying my dad and Jesus says, oh yeah, that's such a good thing to do. Why don't you do that? No. In the Gospel of Matthew, he says, let the dead bury their own dead. Somebody else says, Jesus, I want to follow you. Like, show me like, what your accommodations are. And he goes, listen, birds have nests, squirrels have holes that they live in. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Like, he's actually doing the different thing in each of those things. Uh, a wealthy young man comes to Jesus in Matthew 19, saying, what good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Or in some translations, good teacher. What should I do to get the good life? And Jesus' response is, why do you call me good? Answering a question with a question. We're going to get to one of those today, too. Why do you call me good? Like, there's only one who is good. Does that sound like the kind of friend you really want to be around? Listen, we're all like in a church. We're supposed to love Jesus. But if you actually look at this in terms of the kind of friendships that we tend to fill our lives with and the way that we think about friendship today, this is like a whole different picture, isn't it? And it can feel a little confusing to us in that regard. His way of being a friend, Jesus' way of asking questions presents a constant challenge to his followers and to us if we're listening. His complete willingness to risk the friendship in order to tell us the truth because he cares more about our flourishing than he does about us rejecting him. Go to the end of the story with Jesus, right? At the end of his earthly life, we did reject him because of what he said and did. And that ends up actually being the best thing for us. We go farther down the road. So today what I wanted to look at is one particular interaction, one where Jesus answers a question with a question, annoying, and then when asked a follow-up question, he responds with a fictional story and then another question, double annoying. Talk about a lack of direct answers and talk about cutting to the heart of what's really going on. And so as we look at this, here's three things I want us to consider that I'm going to get back to after we tell the story. First of all, will you allow Jesus to challenge you? Will you allow Jesus to challenge you? Will you ask, will you allow him to ask you the kinds of questions that might lead to a more healthy, a more flourishing life? Will you do that? If all we're trying to do here is get Jesus to fit into our box 
of what we think and what we believe already, then this isn't going to go very well. The whole Christianity thing uh, actually doesn't go very well for you. Because you only begin this journey of faith by allowing Jesus to challenge you. And if you ever get to the point where you think you have him figured out, then you've stepped into the role of God. And he's not God anymore in your life. And so you've got to continue to allow Christ to challenge you. And how does he offer these challenges today? Well, through the presence of God, through the Holy Spirit, yes. And very often through the challenge of our friends, our neighbors, the challenge of Scripture. Will you allow yourself to be challenged, or do you already have the answer to everything? That's the first question as we're going through this. Here's the second question. Will you be the kind of friend to others willing to offer a challenge? We're going to talk about what friendship really involves with one another. And then the challenge from this particular interaction is, will you take the risk to compassionately engage with your neighbor, whomever that might be? Those are our three challenges. Let's get into the story. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. If you have a Bible, I'm not going to put the passage on the screen. So I'd love it if you open a Bible or open your device. Be like Moses. Open your tablet. <laughs> That's going to be so good. This fall, we're going to do Exodus. I'm going to use that joke every week. Just, you might as well start laughing now. <laughs> there you go. That's good. Um, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. You might know this as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, and the way that you speak to us personally through the scriptures. And can you, would you continue to mold and shape us individually and as a community to actually be a healthy representation of the body of Christ here in the Twin Ports? Come and speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Luke 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Pause. Notice with me how this entire interaction is built on suspicion. An expert in the law stands up and says, I want to test you. Well, he doesn't say it out loud, but that's exactly what he does, right? A lawyer is publicly testing Jesus. This fella knew what the answer to his question was, as we'll find out in a minute. He's not seeking information to make his life better. Not at all. He's challenging Jesus rather than being challenged by him. Can I make a personal observation here for a minute? I've been following Jesus for a bunch of years. I've been a leader and the pastor in a church for many of those years since the late 70s. I can no longer count the number of times people have come up to me and asked me the exact same question. This is not just like a one-off thing for Jesus. This happens all the time to anybody who's a leader in any kind of a faith community. And I know what's going on. It can often come from a really good place. They want to see like, Michael, are you leading in a good way? Is this a good church? 
If I'm a leader they can agree with, do I believe the right stuff? Listen, I would not attend or lead a church that doesn't believe in the life, the sacrificial death and the resurrection of Jesus. His sacrificial death on the cross for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, the lordship of Jesus Christ, and that putting our faith and our trust and our confidence in him is the only way to a flourishing life with God and with one another. That's the gospel. That's like the beginning of the good news. So I totally understand the proper motivation for this kind of testing. But have you discovered yet that believing something and then actually living it out are worlds apart? They're like worlds apart. Like there's not some end of the age true-false test that you have to pass to like get in good with God. This is about actually living out the reality of this and having it shape every single part of your life today. And the truth is, all of us have things that we believe that we don't act on. We have habitual disobedience in our lives to things that God's asking us to do. All of us do. We have things in the scripture that we just disregard like, well, I don't like that. I'm not going to do that part. I've never met a human that doesn't have that. Like you have that same thing going on. Does anybody ever visit the doctor and the doctor tells you something that you should do and you're like, oh, maybe. And then sometimes we just like switch doctors. I don't like what that guy said to me. I actually did that. Had my, my doctor that I really liked when I first moved to town moved away and another guy came in. I could hardly understand what he was saying. By the time I finally figured out what he was saying to me, what he was saying is he said, Michael, you're fat. You need to lose weight. Now, normally I like direct conversation. I felt terribly offended by that. I changed doctors. First, I just didn't go back to him for five years, and I thought, you know, I need to go see somebody because I'm getting into my 50s. I should probably go see somebody. And the, that doc asked me what happened and why I didn't go to the other doc anymore, and I told him. He chuckled, and he goes, okay, well, I'll figure out a nicer way to say, Michael, you need to lose some weight. <laughs> we laughed about it, and I thought, I'm that guy. We're all that guy in some way. We have things that we know are actually good for us that we just refuse to do because in the moment, just another cocktail sounds really good. Like in the moment, just another bag of chips, another drive through order of fries seems like that's going to meet our need. We all do that. The key is, are we willing to actually be challenged to look at those things? Are we willing to do that? What's something that you know is good for you that you just refuse to do? Could I be a good enough friend to encourage you to go there today? Let's go there. Like, let's not just go to church and like put on our nice clothes and button up our shirt. I actually buttoned up my shirt for you guys, can you tell? Let's actually allow the gospel to change what's going on inside of us. All right, verse 26, <laughs> that was the first verse. <laughs> What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So Jesus asked him a question back. That's a knowing habit, answering a question with a question. You're the expert, what do you think? Verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's combining two different passages from Deuteronomy and from Numbers. He, he's giving the most common answer 
in, the, in that contemporary uh, Jewish tradition. Jesus responds, verse 28, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Great answer, Jesus says. Do that, you got it. You're in, right? Next. I love the way Jesus doesn't immediately engage deeper. Like he lets the guy, remember the very first question? We talked about this about three weeks ago. I preached the message, the very first question that underlies all the other questions that Jesus is asking what do you really want? And he, Jesus allows this guy to take it deeper. He doesn't just engage with him in that. Like he, he, he allows him to ask the question he really wants to ask. That's like a high degree in Jesus of what we would call emotional self-differentiation, a willingness to engage on whatever level people are willing to engage on. So verse 29, I love this. But he, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? To justify, to demonstrate, to prove that something is morally right, or in this case, that I am right. I wanna look good in front of the other people that are around. Right? The expert is now, finds himself on the defensive. If Jesus said, you know what, you answered that right, good job, way to go, next. What's my reason for standing up and challenging him? What did I really want to do in that situation that Jesus didn't give me the ability to do? This great just study and human interaction here and how Jesus does that. Why would he need to justify himself? And so Jesus says, verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. You know, you might not realize this. Jesus often taught using fictional stories, stories that are designed to actually reveal something much deeper. We call them parables, uh, but they're, they're actually like really cool works of fiction. He's making up a story to get to a bigger point, something below the surface. And the story goes on, verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, or I would say vineyard worship leader, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, when the man, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring uh, on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, so the guy was traveling with quite a bit of stuff. He brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. The thing that would have caught his attention, the expert's attention in this case, was that the fact that the Samaritan was the one who had pity on him. The Samaritans, if you don't know uh, much of your New Testament history, were a group of people who actually believed that they were the true descendants of Israel and the true keepers of the Torah. During the time of the New Testament, their chief religious site was a mountain that was nearby, and they believed that the Jerusalem temple and the Jerusalem priesthood were illegitimate. So Samaritan itself, the word means keeper of the law. They honestly believed that they were in the right and the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. Early Jewish writing talks about those foolish people who live in Shechem 
are not even people. The Jewish folks dehumanize them to the point they no longer see them as people. They no longer see them as fellow humans. They are so angry at them. And Jesus takes this dehumanized man and makes him the center of the story. If that's not brilliant, then I don't know what brilliant is. Because now the teacher of the law is saying, who's my neighbor? And we'll get to Jesus' question in just a minute. Do you know that throughout history, all the humans have always tried to dehumanize those they disagree with? Here's, 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 here's the question that hits home for me in this moment. Who is it that I tend to dehumanize? Like if, if God wants to ask a really challenging question in this moment, I think that's what he's doing. Who is it that you tend to dehumanize? They're just not real people. They don't matter. We've done it with different races of people. Right? One of the huge issues in America that we've been wrestling with for, I don't know, a couple hundred years, at least a hundred years, is the dehumanizing of African Americans. Who do we currently tend to dehumanize? If you watch much cable news on either side of the deal, the people that are dehumanized are the people who are on the other side of the deal. They're not even real people. They don't even deserve to live. I hear that from the left and the right. Do you realize that's the thing that all the humans do all the time? And that's not the thing that the followers of Jesus should ever do? That's the point that he's making here. That's where, that's where he's going. In his fictional story, he makes the central figure, the one who stops and cares for the wounded man from his own resources for multiple days, he makes him the person that they despised. And his motivation for taking care of him, the word pity is used in the English. Oftentimes this word is translated compassion. Splach nizomi. Splach nizomi. Splach nizomai is another way to say it. It means to feel deeply. It means to feel something viscerally like in my bowels to experience great affection towards when Jesus looked at the crowds and he saw them as harassed and helpless, like shepherd without a sheep at the end of Matthew 9, it's the same word. Splachnizomai, compassion, pity. He felt something for the crowds who were without him. And it's the same thing that the Samaritan man feels. Verse 36, Jesus then follows up his fictional story with a question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? Remember the first question? What must I do to inherit life? Remember the second question, who is my neighbor? The expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say the Samaritan man. Those words can't even come out of his mouth. He goes, well, I guess it's the guy who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go be like that man. Go be like the Samaritan. Go and do likewise. Both times that he's asked a question by the expert, Jesus allows, he answers, he asks the question back and allows that guy to answer the question. 
He's not only challenging what do you believe, he's challenging can you put it into practice. So coming back to my three questions for us to consider. Will we allow Jesus, will we allow the Holy Spirit, will we allow our friends in this community or any community to challenge us? Or do we have everything locked down and figured out and we're like gonna tell the Holy Spirit how to do his job? God's not embarrassed to ask you and I the tough questions. Listen, if someone is truly concerned about your well-being, they're gonna be very willing to ask you tough questions. Questions that may feel incredibly painful at the time but will lead you towards health. Should you really be driving after happy hour? They're gonna ask you the tough question. And it may like just totally tick you off in the moment. Do you really need another order of fries? Is that the best thing that you should be eating right now? Those are actually really good friends. Those aren't the annoying ones. Is working 27 hours a day really healthy for you? You're like, Michael, there's only 24. Some of us work like there's 27. Is that really the healthiest thing? Like, our really good friends are gonna do that with us. The Holy Spirit brings that up. When you're reading scripture, do you allow God to challenge you as you read through the Bible, or do you only look for the things and highlight the things that affirm what you already believe? One of the things I've learned following Jesus for a little bit here, pay attention to the things that I normally resist. When something pops up and I resist it, pay attention. God might be actually challenging me in something. He might be offering me a way towards health, right? Do we allow him to do that? Listen, like once you become part of a community like this, once you surrender uh, or begin the process of surrendering your life to Christ, it can feel like all the change is over, it's done. Like I've let Jesus be the king of my life and, 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 and I'm loved, I'm adopted, I'm loved more than I ever imagined possible. The Holy Spirit is given as the seal, as this promise of God's life. I've trusted Christ and his finished work on the cross and I'm done. All of that other stuff is true and yet the I'm done is never. The journey Theologians call it sanctification. Becoming more like Christ is a moment-by-moment journey where you're constantly going right foot, left foot. I'm taking another step, right foot, left foot. Or if you're pedaling your bike, it's kind of like my e-bike. I just thought of this. I have to go right pedal, left pedal, and then the Holy Spirit kicks in like the electric motor and helps me up the hill. But I gotta pedal. I I like that, that just made me happy. I don't, know what, I don't know how that analogy continues as my battery runs out, but there you go. The journey of becoming Christ is little bit by little bit, and one of the main ways that God works in our lives is to highlight, to pinpoint the continuing growth and challenge that we need in our lives. So we tend to think of our truest friends as the one who support, encourage, and affirm us, but what if there's much, much more? Don't get me wrong, I love affirmation just as much as the next guy. I love it. And yet, I've never really grown a lot from affirmation. I've grown from the friends who also challenge. I need friends not just to help me accomplish my goals, but to constantly check in with me to see if my goals are actually the right goals. I need that in my life. Just like we as parents provide that in our kids' lives. 
And the Bible has a lot to say about being open to correction. Proverbs 10, 17, whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. It's not just you, it's other people. Or I love this one. I, I, I had like 40 passages out of Proverbs. I narrowed it down to two. 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. That's actually one of my favorites. My mom told me not to use that word, but it's right there in the Hebrew, so I'm gonna use it. What are the tough questions that maybe God's asking you right now? How might he ask you through the scriptures? How might he ask you through your family? How might he ask you through the Holy Spirit pricking your conscience? What are the tough questions that he's asking? Never forget that Jesus is a friend, but he's much more than a friend. Much more. He's the Lord, the creator of everything. Just reflect back a minute, Colossians chapter one, verse 15. The son, the apostle Paul writes, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that, in, uh, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He's not just friend that asks annoying questions. This is the Lord. This is the master. Will you allow him to challenge you? That's a good question. A couple practical suggestions. Ask God for real, brutally honest friends. That was the title of James's article that I read, Finding Brutal Friends. I immediately went to it because I'm an eight on the Enneagram and I like intense, brutal things. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. No big deal. But that's me. Ask God for friends that are willing to be honest with you. Don't push them away. Don't run away. At times, we're tempted to bolt just to get out of uncomfortable situations and friendships due to the discomfort that we're feeling because people are pushing on us. But our willingness to remain, our willingness to dwell, John chapter 15, with Christ and with one another, creates the bedrock on which our relationships and him are being built together. So ask God for brutal friends. Pay attention to what you resist. All right, here's the second question. Will we become the kind of friend who's actually willing to take a risk with other people to help them live a flourishing life? A true friend like Jesus is a friend who's willing to risk rejection. And we take the risk because we want to help one another become the most healthy version of ourselves in healthy community. Think about it this way. What if your own personal transformation isn't just your business, it's your friend's business too. That runs so counter to almost everything in an American mindset. What if your personal transformation isn't just your business? What if it's also your friend's business? What if we desperately need others to speak into our lives to show us what we can't see? You realize you have blind spots, right? That's why they're called blind Spots, 
things that you can't see about yourself? What if we desperately need that in our lives? I'm not suggesting like a manipulative, coercive, over-controlling kind of engaging where we forcibly you know, impose our agendas on one another. I'm talking about being co-partners with God in our transformation. God invites us to be transformed. We have to actively participate in that. All I'm saying is, what if you're not alone? What if there's other humans who deeply love you and care about you and are willing to engage in that with you? And it doesn't mean it's not going to come without bumps and bruises and hiccups and all sorts of you know, scrapes. I'm just saying it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it in the long run. God is inviting us to partner with him and with one another, seeing ourselves as joint participants with each other in our lives together. And if you think, Michael, where's that in the Bible? I'd say, have you read through any of the letters in the New Testament? Because that's what Peter and Paul and James and everybody else is doing. Throughout the New Testament, they are challenging us as followers of Jesus in local communities to actually live what we believe. Almost every one of Paul's letters starts out, the first half of it, like Ephesians, it starts out with, here's the really cool picture of who God is and everything that he has done. And then you get to chapter four, verse one. And he says, he pivots and he goes, in light of all that, I, Paul, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you with everything in me to pursue the unity, to go everything, apply everything you've got, the exact words aren't coming to me, you know, but the pursuit of unity of the spirit through the bond of faith. Do everything to pursue that. And then he begins to walk out, chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, how we actually do that. Most of his letters are that way. In healthy biblical community, we lovingly challenge one another to be the people we all know that God is forming us to become. I don't have time to go into this, but there's a 12th century abbot in northeastern England, Alred of Riveau, a really fascinating dude. And he, had, uh, he, he ran like a, a monastery that had uh, 500 brothers and 150 monks, so about 650 men living together. I don't know if you've ever seen 650 men living together. It's probably not the prettiest sight. It's like a logging camp in Oregon or an oil field in northern uh, uh, North Dakota, right? And what he does is he actually talks about, as he's watched the men in the community, he says there's basically three categories of friendship. He says there's the carnal friends. This is his words, carnal friends. These are relationships kind of based around a shared weakness, playing off of one another's weaknesses, encouraging behaviors that are actually harmful. The last thing in these relationships that we want to hear from one another is the truth. These relationships actually feed off self-deception. And they're the last ones to realize they're hurting each other. They encourage the worst in us. They make us comfortable doing wrong. They harden our hearts and turn us away from God. Think about relationships where you're comfortable spreading rumors. Think about friends who don't challenge you when you say something malicious or racist. Think about friends who encourage you to ridicule other people. Think about friends who are not bothered at all, like they cheer you on when you lie, when you're selfish, when you're elite, when you're elusive. Those are carnal friendships. Then he lists another category, worldly friendships. Basically, friendships that encourage us to seek an advantage, to seek more stuff. They, they nurture the wrong kinds of ambitions in our lives. They're the alliances that we form that are generally self-serving. 
A true friend focuses on the well-being of others. These friendships focus on our own well-being. They can be full of deceit or intrigue, and they seldom last long. We form them fast, we end them quickly, because as soon as no apparent advantage is available, we're on to the next thing. Think about alliances in business and in politics and colleges and universities and many, sadly, of our churches, where we ought to be more concerned about serving than we are in powers and title and rank. They're actually more subtle than the carnal friendships, and we admire them and celebrate them in our movies. We think we should be like them. We admire the powerful. We worship the celebrities. We want to be noticed as famous. But here's a 12th century monk writing about how dangerous that is. And then he lists spiritual friendships. We need people who care enough for us to not only be interested in our physical well-being, but also our spiritual well-being and those who will help us achieve that. Spiritual friends, he writes, do the best things friends do together, but they understand their friendship in a particular way. They know what they hold in common in their heart isn't just their love of paddleboarding, but they want to help one another become the very best human they can, centered on God, anything else in life. If you want to read more about that, a book called Becoming Friends, Paul Waddell is really good. Here's a practical, couple practical thoughts based out of that. What kind of friend are you? We probably all have those three friendships circulating around our lives, if we're honest. Where do you gravitate towards the most? When you're at that point in your day, in your week, in your month, where you're really low on energy and I just, ah, I just need something to make me feel better, what friend do you go to? Like, where do you head? Great challenging questions. How might your fear of rejection actually be keeping you from being a really good friend to somebody in your life? What's the worst thing they can do? Reject you. What if you lovingly reached out and kept reaching out and kept engaging? What if you didn't have to be, what if you had friends where you didn't have to be afraid of what you said? Because even though it hurt their feelings, Michael, you're fat, lose weight, they're not going to reject you. What would it be like? Think about how you may have lacked the courage to be a true friend to somebody, or how you might have rejected somebody who was trying to be a, a really good friend to you. I think it's super, super helpful. And then here's the last one based on this passage. Will I commit to cultivating a deep compassion for those I disagree with? <laughs> Jesus' interaction with this guy, his biggest struggle, he wanted to limit the scope of who he considered to be his neighbor. He wanted to limit the scope of his responsibility. He did not want to have to pay attention to the dehumanized folks. Let's suppose he's asking the question, okay, Jesus, I know, love your neighbor as yourself thing, but who am I really responsible to actually care for, to be a friend of, to be a neighbor of? Jesus picks his less than human counterpart, the Samaritan. In our extremely polarized culture right now, who's your Samaritan? Who do you dehumanize? That's a great question, isn't it? I'd sit with it for a while. I wouldn't settle for a quick answer unless you got a whole, like a whole list of people you've dehumanized. 
You can start listing them off, right? Who, who is the one I do that? Who are the group of people that to me are outside of God's grace or on the other side of the aisle, the folks that, man, I don't see any hope for them whatsoever. Beginning to identify that is so important. Who are the people I cannot muster compassion for? As followers of the resurrected Christ, this kind of compassion needs to flow out of us. So practically, how do I cultivate that kind of compassion? Well, here's the first thing that I have found works for me every single time. I need to get face-to-face, literal, not Facebook, face-to-face with the people that I disagree with. Once I get face-to-face with the people I disagree with and begin to ask them their story, the thing I've discovered is that they want the world to be a better place generally the same way I want the world to be a better place. Their way of getting there just seems totally messed up in my head. It seems like a totally broken way to get there. And so one of my favorite words that I use in all kinds of contexts, so if I've said this to you, don't feel offended that I somehow disagreed with you, But the thing that I say is when somebody says something that's totally off the wall to me, I say the same thing when I read the passage of scripture I just read. That's fascinating. (laughs) Tell me more. Because that helps me reorient my brain around what they're saying. I shared that joke once a few years ago and somebody that I had just boarding a plane with the night before heard me share that and they heard you guys chuckle and they said, uh, you, when you said that's fascinating to me that night, you were making fun of me. I go, I, I say it all the time about everything. I get like a really great coffee and I'm like, this is fascinating. How did you get this to taste this good? Right? It's just, I, I, I'm fascinated by the world I live in. And when somebody comes up with a really odd point of view, I find that equally fascinating as a Monet painting. Tell me more. I've learned to get curious about that And what I've discovered is the people that I thought that were easy for me to demonize became really hard for me to do that to. The people that were easy for me to dehumanize became impossible to do that with as I saw their humanness and what they really care about. The only way I'm able to develop God's kind of compassion, splachnizomai, is when I get face to face. And you realize, it dawned on me, that's exactly what God did for you and I. The incarnation, like what we celebrate at Christmas. You guys remember Christmas? It's coming up again. It's not that far away. Start shopping now. (laughs) The whole thing about that is God getting face to face with us and showing us his love. And it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance not all his blog posts about how evil we are. I mean, we kind of had that in the prophets. Never mind, we'll get back to that later. Am I making sense? I think he's leading us into something as a church, as a body of Christ in this incredibly polarized moment to do the body of Christ, to be the body of Christ in a different kind of way that actually brings healing that the whole world is looking for. And we'll never do it by just strengthening our battle lines. It doesn't happen that way. That's not how God did it with us. That's not how he's going to use it to do it with other people. All right, that's That's my message. Hopefully there's something in there you can take home and chew on. Let's move into ministry time, my favorite part of a vineyard service where we get to pray for one another. So why don't you guys stand up?
invite the worship team to come on up here. I went a little long, went off my notes, apologize. I wrote, this, I wrote this message this week on my phone while bouncing across the Great Plains. Brenda was driving the truck. We'd been out to the West Coast to visit a bunch of churches and stuff like that that she oversees. And my laptop was dead and the truck was bouncing and I'm writing this on my phone. And, and I just felt like God just downloaded, like, Michael, I want you and I want the church that you lead to live differently. I want you to reflect my son, Jesus. And so, God, we just lift that up to you, that prayer. We want to reflect you. We want to reflect you the way you are. And so, Father, would you make us um, open to being challenged by you? Would you give us soft hearts? And we just say, Holy Spirit, you have the freedom to challenge anything in our lives you want to challenge. <laughs> uh, I prayed that for you. For that not to take, you better had your fingers crossed, otherwise you're getting it. <laughs> I don't believe in that. Uh, God, we need your presence to actually lead us in really good, healthy ways here. Would you give us courage to be the kind of friends to one another and to the rest of the world that Jesus has been to us? Would you empower us to do that? And as we get face-to-face and listen to other stories, God, would you um, fill us with your compassion? Fill us with your compassion, your love. Father, my prayer is that we would not fight to win a culture war, but that we would actually love you and love our neighbor as ourselves. Holy Spirit, would you come? All right. If God's highlighted something, come up and get some prayer. If you're on the ministry team, why don't you make your way up here right now? I think God wants to actually do some work in our hearts. If there's, people, if there's people that you have dehumanized that God's brought to the surface and you're able to identify them, come get some prayer. If you notice yourself in all that talk about friendship in some of the wrong places, would you come get some prayer about that? If you find in you a codependency that does not allow you to challenge or not as, that you can't even imagine yourself asking some of your friends, the tough questions that are rumbling around in your head or allowing them to ask you those questions. Come up and get some prayer. I think there's some stuff that God wants to do in us to make us look just a tiny bit more like Jesus today. And we get to be the active participants in that. And if you don't want to come get prayer alone, grab the hand of somebody next to you that you know. I mean, you could try grabbing somebody you don't know his hand that might not go well but grab somebody's hand that you know and bring them up with you get prayer together it's not just our individual job we're in this whole thing together so Holy Spirit would you give us the courage to respond to you in this moment in Christ's name I pray Amen